Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number six of the Talk Music Podcast. I'm Andrew Schalk. Hi, I'm Tom Chamruth. We have yet again, I think, a real interesting, hopefully fun as well, show coming up to you with lots of interesting discussions. Please don't leave because we're actually going to get into something called music publishing, which can get dry at times, but we promise we'll keep it brisk and moving along and we'll try to throw as much fun in it as we can. And then Tom and I are going to have a bit of a debate, discussion about bass players. Are they good? Are they bad? What is good? What is bad? Our favorites, maybe our not so favorites. And I'll get into the world of cover songs. What songs really suck the big one? And what are some actual decent ones that we still listen to on the radio every day? I can't wait. I know it's a subject that most musicians and songwriters really don't understand, but the reality is actually that it's the main platform where you can actually make a living these days, and actually a really great one if your songs get exposure. Music publishing. Some of the other things we're going to talk about, um, which are part of publishing, will be things like the fight for master rights and how Taylor Swift was able to re-record her catalog. You know, how was she able to do that? Why did she do it? We're going to also touch on the value of catalogs, which seems to be a big buzz out there. Every week we're hearing about particularly major artists actually selling their catalogs almost every week now. So we'll touch on that. And uh, we're really fortunate. Uh, we have a special guest today to help us explain how all this interesting publishing works. His name is Greg Stevens. It's a treat to have someone with us who is not just a lawyer in the music and copyright area, but also was a signed musician with Capitol Records, and he also taught music management at Durham College. Suffice to say that he knows what he's talking about. So, Greg, so nice to have you aboard on this, uh, what I think is going to be a rather interesting discussion, which frankly, we're going to keep it simple, <laughs> if that's okay with you, and I have a couple of really easy questions to get us started on it. I think what most people want to probably hear out there, whether you're a musician or just even a person interested in getting into songwriting perhaps is what is publishing and why is it so important in a musician's career? Well, firstly, thanks very much for the lovely introduction. I'm really pleased to be here. Music publishing is totally associated with the rights in the songs, the compositions. So it's not the recording. I want to distinguish that right away. Recording rights are, are the rights to make that recording and to duplicate it on records, be they vinyl or tape or MP3s or cassettes, uh, CDs, etc. So that's a recording, and the recording is of a song. So there's the song interposed onto the recording, and the person who owns the recording may be different from the person who owns the song. For example, the record company may have the rights in the recording. I suppose a manager, a promoter, some some other party could own the recording, but if you're sitting in your own studio and you make a recording of your own song, you're going to own both. Celine Dion, not knowing for writing her own song, she, perhaps contractually she was able to get some publishing rights, but not really a writer. So other people, you know, Stefan Macchio or other people wrote great songs for her. And she, as a singer, when she sold albums, she would make money that way, but she would not necessarily be making money on the publishing side unless she was a co-writer. Are they standard splits? Like, is it 30-30, or, or how does that work? Somebody is a writer, they wrote a song, and then she then performs it. Would then she have to give 50% or 20%, or is this all negotiated ahead of time on an individual basis? So that would be a flat rate. I mean, they could negotiate for what they call a three-quarter rate, unlikely. Uh, in her stature, they're going to want the full rate. As far as her income, she had negotiations with her record label, and that determined how much of a royalty rate she would get from recordings. She would get no publishing unless, again, she was a co-writer or 
no. obtain some rights contractually through negotiations. I'm not saying she she has done this, but I've also heard Greg in the past that sometimes artists will say, well, yeah, I'll do your song, but I want some of the publishing. Yes. Which um, probably will... <laughs> I don't know if that's fair or not. I guess it depends on the case, but I'm definitely aware of that being the case if you're a major artist because you know that you have the leverage to say to that writer that, hey, you know, I, I want to have a piece of the action. Would it also depend on the potential amounts that they would secure from performing that? I mean, some of Celine's stature, as you were saying, Greg, uh, she's going to bring in a lot millions yeah. millions yes. coming in yeah. so if that is the case can someone say that i want a higher rate of publishing for that or a lower rate being in that they will you know be bringing in so much an artist of that stature is so powerful and the, the sales are, are streams and etc are almost guaranteed so the songwriter and the publisher would really want one of their songs on her record Absolutely. and they might make concessions is it not particularly in today's new music world, the main way that artists make money versus earnings from live and merch? It depends. I mean, if you're a touring act and you're filling stadiums with 200 bucks a ticket and selling merch every night. Let's say you're a brand new artist. Is it not important to make sure that when you're in the band that you're sharing in the songwriting and in the publishing because technically you may not make money live for a few years? In some cases, it could be five years or, or more. But if you've written songs that are getting streaming play, you could be making at least a living. Uh, yeah, it, it is a very fundamental, important right. And the publishing is something that should be dealt with seriously right from the get-go. So if I wanted to sit and, and write a song with Tom Tremuth, we should sit down maybe in advance and say, well, we're both going to work on this. This is going to be a 50-50 song. And we want to write that down. Whether the song blows up or no one ever hears it, it's just really important. So legally do that paperwork, otherwise you, you might be in trouble and somebody else is making all the money and you're hearing your song on the radio and wondering where your check is. Yeah, or even if there's a falling out among band members sure. and someone leaves and there's no that written agreement and, you know, and, and I say, well, I wrote part of that song, I'm leaving the band, you can't record it anymore. Do you have to sign a publishing deal in order to get paid if your song gets on a streaming service or another platform? Uh, no, you don't, not strictly speaking. However, it's a very valuable thing to have. Dive into that part. What is a publishing company and why would you want to sign with one? Well, there's two kinds of publishing deals and one is like a, a full co-pub deal. And in that event, your publisher is going to probably own all or part of all your songs and you're going to split up the royalties and stuff but the, the publisher is going to own those songs. An admin deal is basically you're kind of lending the publisher rights in the songs for a period of, say, five or ten years, and you're saying, please do all my publishing work. You don't own the stuff, but you can get a good share of it if you work on this stuff, and you can and please collect worldwide and represent okay. me, and if someone infringes, please go after them. publisher might have a better incentive to... For example, fly you to L.A. to do some co-writes and things like that. Or I'm so you glad you brought that up. I was just going to go there that, that a lot of artists often need that help in the beginning. They don't know any other songwriters, for example. And as you're mentioning there, they can help you go to New York or L.A. or songwriting camps or whatever, correct? Yeah, I, I think that's an invaluable thing. And a lot of people, even when I was young, struggled to write songs on my own and was afraid to give up part of the composition to someone else. But really, if that someone else was really good or more experienced or they had a great publisher and I didn't and whatever, that could be a very valuable thing. So we might have a better song and better administration involved and name recognition and all kinds of things going. And I'm not gonna know those people no. sitting in a little room in my basement starting no. out or in my bedroom with, with a little uh, computer. So you're saying the networking is invaluable. In other words, it's, you just can't, it, you can't get those people on the phone. Never mind. They're not going to return your, your email. Well, that's, that's right. And, and they don't want to waste their time either. I, I mean, songwriters are pretty generous and gracious people, but they, who wants to write songs with someone who doesn't have a recording contract, doesn't have a publisher, the song will never be released, uh, or, you know, there's going to be nothing happening from their end. Sure. But if a major publisher represented you uh, and said to some other hot 
writer or something, you know, work with this kid. We're behind it. We're going to make this happen. We have some opportunities lined up, whatever. Then yeah. they're going to listen, and it's worth their time to uh, work with a novice and, and help you along and improve the song. It kind of reminds me of the Alanis Morissette situation. I mean, she was in Canada, in Ottawa, and I remember seeing videos of her very early on, and then she's flown down to Los Angeles, yep. hooked up with Glenn Ballard, yep. hooked up with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and then that album was what, the biggest selling? Well, that may have been a publisher who was behind it. Wasn't it John Alexander? Who, uh, the yeah, John was really important in that case, and I'm not here to kind of promote uh, <laughs> individuals, but I, I was at, in his office in New York, and I heard Jagged Little Pill before it was ever released, and then was at a, really? a showcase in Toronto at the Velvet Underground with about 20 people there. And wow. Her publisher stayed behind her and arranged co-writes and kind of hooked her up with great musicians and the producer. And I believe, I'm uh, as much of the inside track as I understand, kind of kept her alive, kept her going when nobody else was interested. And then after no one's interested, as you say, we have this smash album, which almost defines a decade. Yeah, you're right. No, that's a great example, Andrew, actually, where, where well, she was maybe down and out. Um, well, that's sort of what I was getting at, is yeah. because, you know, I mean, she was kind of like a, a Backstreet Boys type dance bands, you know, doing... Oh, her earlier album, yeah, the first yeah. album is nothing like her. Nothing, completely different. <laughs> completely different. And then, you know, she's uh, sent down to Los Angeles and uh, given a makeover and writes all those fantastic songs and has got great musicians behind that. And it's, it's a, a massive... And, and it would have been impossible success. to do on her own without help. Could you almost argue that it is the the publishing and the assistance and all the backing which actually can create the artists? Well, I, I, I think that's a really great example, and I'm sure that if we sat here, we can probably come up with another 20 or 30 that that exact same thing has happened to, if not 100. The publishers definitely um, invest in your career in the beginning, and, and they're believers, and they won't stop. Yes, a good publisher can be so important because they see what a young artist or writer needs, and that writer may need a co-writer, may need some financial support, may need some recording services. So some of the good publishers have uh, small little studios where you can actually go in and cut master recordings right there. I can think uh, of uh, publishers. all of them actually now that are doing that regularly, Greg, just to have it on their premises so it's so convenient. And now the recording budgets, uh, they've dropped down to almost zero levels at, in some cases. Yeah. Having your own portable studio at a publishing company is amazing uh, benefit for somebody. Right. So, yeah, I just wanted to point out that there's not only the infrastructure, the international aspect, the financial, but it could even be recording could be hooking you up with people, introducing you to co-writers or producer or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now that angel could be anyone, but it, it, it is most obviously a publisher. And what I mean by could be anyone, it could be a record producer who takes you under their wing and, and provides some of these services and introduces you to people Good or point. whatever. You could have something else. It takes a village really, and you have to build a team. And I would submit that the publisher is, is one of the absolute key members of a good team. One of the things that are out, out in the news media all the time, almost weekly now, if you, you notice, is the, the crazy money deals going down, almost astronomical figures in some cases, about major artists now selling their catalogs. I mean, every, every time I turn on the TV now, uh, you know, if it isn't Dylan or, or Sting now, I heard, is interested. Uh, yeah. what's, what's going on out there with all this and why now, Greg, in your opinion? Well, uh, there, there are two sides of a coin in any okay. business deal. On the business side, there's a bunch of money that's been floating around when all the stocks have been bought up to fair price or above fair price. Bonds weren't paying anything or whatever. And there are wealthy people saying, where can I put my money that's going to generate some income? And some bright people have said, well, look at these copyrights and look at these music rights. Uh, they a hit song will continue to pay you for decades. You know, either the composition or the, the recording, they get used over and over, these classic songs. And even even younger artists who have had hit songs, 80s or in the aughts even, are, are selling their rights. So that's the money side. On mm -hmm. the artist side, let's call it, there are a couple of things. One, one was COVID where people couldn't tour and their uh, lifestyles may have been impinged upon because they needed 
a cash. I never thought of that. Send their kid to the university. Oh, those big point. homes yeah. need to have bills to pay. <laughs> so there, there are bills to pay. Then there's demographic reasons where a lot of these artists are 65, 70, kind of going, why would I want a million a year when I can get 50 million now or, or with some of them 400 million? Or I mean, that's probably Dylan. So it's not greed, it's really more part of estate planning where you're thinking, well, I'm only gonna be alive and I'm already set up and whatever, so let's get this chunk and give it to the kids or give it to uh, you know charities or whatever. Uh, so there's kind of an incentive for a certain age group of people to kind of say, I don't want regular royalties, I want it now. So are you that surprised by risky. some of those astronomical figures, Greg, like 300, 400 million? I kind of was. Well, Springsteen, 550. <laughs> I mean, that's... Uh... Like, how long does it take to recoup that? Yeah. Well, this is the problem for the money <laughs> side. The money side has seen the rise of streaming income for, say, the last five or seven years, which used to be Zip, mm -hmm. and everyone was doing unauthorized downloads, and the music business was in deep trouble. And then the streaming and Apple Music, et cetera, Spotify came online and now you know all boats are rising because there's all this new money. So the risk there is that uh, that income will not continue to rise. I mean, at a certain point, everyone who's gonna subscribe to a $10 a month music service has their service mm -hmm. and you're not gonna really get two or three of them. That is gonna peak out, that's the risk there. And as multiples rise and a multiple is how many times the one-year value of a catalog income, I will pay. Okay. So if a catalog was making, say, 100000 a year, and I paid a 10-year amount, it would take me 10 years to earn that money back, all things remaining equal. And for that 100000 I would pay a million bucks. Pete Townsend, for example, he's, in his recent autobiography, he was complaining that he was worried that he'd been licensing the Who's material for commercials everywhere. And it's true. Cars, you name it, uh, restaurants, anything under the sun. Is that different from what's happening now where people are selling off the entire catalog? I mean, is this something, I mean, I was curious if he had already done that. If you sell this off, do you do it on a piecemeal basis or is it basically once it's done, it's done? Well, the, the deal is usually done and complete, but a lot of these people aren't selling full copyrights. They may have had a co-writer, they may have had a publisher involved. They might, they, so what they're really selling is their own income stream. So in other words, even if I had a, a music publisher and was joined with SoCan or whatever, and a lot of things set up, I could still sell my writer's share of income from my publisher and from SoCan. Or as a performer, I could sell my sound exchange income. So, Greg, you're saying uh, you can keep some income streams and then sell others, basically? Everything's up to negotiation. The yeah. Beach Boys deal just included their name and likeness. For example, then the people who bought that could have a hologram Beach Boys touring 20 years from now. Sorry, they, they sold actually, their name and likeness? They actually have more than the rights Apparently to some so. of them. In addition to the material. I mean, that that's brilliant. It, it is. And the hologram shows will continue. I'm sure there's a well, few that are successful. Well, it was, uh, I believe it was Tupac that was very successful. I, I completely forgot about those rights, uh, Greg, the, the hologram and the touring thing. Yeah, you can sell or withhold anything. So I, I believe Neil Young just sold a lot of his music rights, but he was able to put his foot down uh, against Spotify saying, take my music down. Obvious to me, he withheld his rights to consent. He sold his catalog, whatever it was, but you know, if you have a question, I, I'm the only guy who has the answer. Whereas most deals with someone of a lesser stature would just sell all of their rights and, and things would just be administered. You know, they get their money and they're out. Everything is up to negotiation and, and negotiations are up to bargaining power. Bargaining power is up to clout. So can we compare Taylor Swift, she sold hers, the six albums, for $300 million, which is, let's say, 60 songs, you know, 10 songs per... Her, her label sold that, not her. Or her label sold that. Against yeah. her will. And I, Bob I, Dylan I, sold his for $300 million. So you get 
two, three hundred millions, 60 songs versus 600 songs. I don't understand that. How are all things equal there? It's not like a bag of jelly, jelly beans where each bean is theoretically worth the same amount. It's 60 high, high earning songs are more valuable than a million songs that'll never do any business. Okay. Yeah, but blowing in the wind? And I'm there at changing. And songs that have already proven themselves <laughs> to be evergreen. In other words, yes, someone said blowing in the wind. That is still used. That's still an extremely valuable song. Whereas a song from one of her albums that wasn't maybe as popular as the others or whatever would, you know, it's in a different category. It might earn for five or 10 years. She's not a great example because she is a very powerful and, and great artist, but any song that's lasted decades and decades and going through generations and your, your grandchildren are listening to it and your grandparents are listening to it, that's something you want to buy. For sure. Well, I would, I would suggest that Dylan's songs have gotten so powerful in our popular culture that a lot of new people know the song. They don't know who wrote it. Blown in the Wind, that song from the 60s, you know, the times are changing, hard, hard rain's going to fall. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, I would ask my kids, and I'm sure my kids would say, I know those songs, but they, they have no idea who wrote them. And f further to the uh, Taylor Swift, I'm glad you, br you brought her up. She, she didn't approve the deal because she couldn't, but she was allowed to re-record her whole catalog, Greg, and how was she able to do that? Now the fans, I think, are all listening to her new versions, are they not? The Taylor version. So th is that not a, a bath that was taken by the, the, the people who paid the, the 300 million? <laughs> well, it, it's a well-negotiated record deal. If you're acting for the artist, you try to get a clause in there that's saying that they, the artist can re-record this song. It's often like five years after the first recording or three years after it was released or whatever, but there's usually a period of time where you're allowed to re-record that song. I don't think most of these labels ever contemplated that someone's going to go in and re-record their entire catalog. But it does happen, and you hear licenses of big songs where the record label wants too much money, so the artist, you know, five or 10 or 20 years later, goes in and cuts the track again, and then they can do their own licensing. Well, I was shocked by that, and, and frankly, uh, I don't know how many artists could pull off a better recording because there's something about uh, the time and a place when you've recorded yeah. the magic in a room and to repeat that magic 30 or 20 years later, I'm not sure that works. So, But I, I can't comment on the Taylor well, Swift. Well, Cinda Williams has done that. With oh, I didn't Sweet Old that. World, yeah. She oh. re-recorded that album. Oh, and I'm, okay. I'm not sure it's a better effort, but... It's tough it. to beat the original. It's yeah, tough. <laughs> I mean, she did that regardless, and I don't know what what the rationale was for that, but I've always questioned, you know, why, why would an artist sort of, I agree with you, Tom, why would you re-record that? Because there's a chance it wouldn't be as good as the original. Well, you might want to do an unplugged version. You might want to do a jazzy version. You might want to do a version with the London Philharmonic. Those are creative reasons for wanting to re-record Sure, that's different, but yeah. As, as I mentioned earlier, the, the financial reason to re-record it is, you know, say there's a television sync license, a big ad, and uh, your record company wants a hundred grand for the master rights, and you're saying, well, you can use my version for fifty. Grand. Well, is that why on the streaming services you'll hear, oh, I think that sounds like Mick Jagger? Well, no, it's not. It's somebody who sounds like Mick Jagger, but it isn't really him because the fee would be through the roof. Well, yeah, so soundalikes <laughs> are a, a different category. They're they're more akin to a cover version. And that's happening everywhere now. I noticed that right right away. Like uh, I'm trying to think of examples, but I go, that sounds like Pearl Jam, but it's not. I can tell it's not, <laughs> but it's close enough, and they don't care. Well, I know Tom Waits has sued a number of people for that over the years with uh, coming out with commercials that sound just like his voice. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was a, a potato chips commercial or something like that. He sued them, and he won. So it says, yeah, it does sound like Tom Waits, but it's not Tom. Well, in the Tom Tom Waits, I mean, he's using something called personality rights, which is the rights to his name and likeness and voice. And and there have been court cases about this where you have your own style. Noted someone else kind of cops your style and you're going, no, you're trading on confusing people that you are me. Okay, Greg, thank you very much for the chat. It was uh, very interesting and I'm, I'm sure we could talk for another two or three hours on this subject. It was uh, quite interesting. Thank you very much and thanks for coming into the Talk Music Podcast. So, Andrew, let's get into... 
the world of cover songs. First of all, why do them? And can you make money from them if successful? We just heard from lawyer Greg Stevens, and basically you don't make money from covering other people's songs, but artists start doing them because it's a way to get noticed right away. There's lots of examples of artists doing a different, unique approach to a cover song, and then all of a sudden having them blow up on YouTube where a lot of people pay attention Mm -hmm. because it's completely different from the original. Well, yeah, that uh, reminds me, you know, there's a lot of them now that I I think in this time and age where people are doing covers of bands like, uh, I think of uh, Mad World, the Tears for Fears song. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my daughter had no idea that that was a cover song by a band named Tears for Fears, which was actually really popular, you know, 30, 30 odd years ago. So it is an interesting subject. I will agree. Yeah. And you've, uh, you've had all sorts of success stories from the past to do cover songs. For example, Justin Bieber and Ed Sheeran. That's both, true. That's both true. started their career off by doing cover songs. And I'm sure that um, if I dug deeper, I could probably come up with tons and tons of examples where the cover song got the artist noticed. In some cases, it's because the voice is great. You know, I can think of some cover songs I've gone, oh, you know, I'm not going to like this. But then the voice comes on and I go, wow, this is a really unique, cool voice. You know, That's true. And, and I also think sometimes it's that familiarity. Like it's like once you've got one foot in the door, you've got somebody listening. So they're going to listen to that cover maybe more so because of that, because it is a cover versus if it was some unknown song by the, that they had written. Ah, yes. That's a very interesting point that... Let's face it, if you're a brand new artist out there and you're just starting uh, your, your career, you may not be a great songwriter. You, you might actually have a lot to learn before you get to the point yeah. where anybody even wants to listen to your song. Because, you know, most of the songs, let's face it, part of the 60,000 a day that go up to Spotify, yeah. you know, 99% of them are, are crap, <laughs> yeah, basically. True. Well, look at the Rolling Stones. I mean, their first album was entirely covers. Oh, I forgot you know, about there that. There wasn't, uh, I think, till their second or third album where they actually started writing their own material. Yeah. And, you know, I always thought that was incredible. You know, like Jagger Richards was about one of the most successful writing duo in history, and yet they started out doing covers. Yeah, definitely. Well, look at it this way, too. Uh, if, if a song is great and it's already proven itself, and you're an artist and you love the song, why not put a new spin on it? But that's the key sure. is you can't try to replicate what was already done you have to kind of really go the opposite direction yeah you know well i mean look at uh, hendrix and all along the watchtower i mean <laughs> oh no is... you went to my first oh, okay. choice my number one <laughs> greatest cover songs ever I, I, you, come on now that's my number one pick actually for, well, uh, for okay uniqueness. forget on. i said that forget i said that. what about uh try with a little help with my friends or a little help for my friends to, you know <laughs> okay you, you cheated you've you, you've read you, that's notes. on your list too <laughs> okay 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 I'll, I'll, stop talking. I'll stop okay, talking i'll stop talking i'll on, let you, you cheated. talk okay <laughs> okay see if you can pick my number two uh just take a wild stab uh, you, you've already got two out of my top five uh maybe satisfaction no but i was five. considering that both I'll tell friends. you who I'll tell you a couple that I had. Johnny Cash, Hurt. Ah, very interesting one. Very interesting one. For I mean, me, when I heard that, I was kind of blown away. Like, and then when somebody said that's Nine Inch Nails, I go, "What? Not not wow. Nine Inch Nails? Not Trent Reznor? Nine Inch Nails?" Yes, yeah, I know. That's incredible. Wow, that is a mind blowing one, and that almost I think redefined who Johnny Cash was at that time. Absolutely. I think, I think he know, was on his last leg. He was. He was yeah. uh, only a few short months left to go. But I mean, you know, Boy Named Sue was now in the back seat. I'm not Hurt sure I'm front. not sure you could have got that kind of a vocal performance. Otherwise he was he was on, on his way out and, and it was just so moving. Yeah. Still is. Yeah, and he gained a whole new audience from that song too. I mean in the nineties he completely revolutionized himself yeah. i mean with uh rick rubin and those albums that he did well it put know? rick rubin on the map too i mean uh for him to strip that music down yeah and record it just with a microphone and and like on his voice and i think a couple of instruments i think it, it was just that. tom petty was the backing band i think yeah like there's very very little instrumentation yeah. but uh that's a blow away for sure another one i had on my list was uh jeff buckley hallelujah wow Particularly his version, although there's been, uh, what, a million <laughs> versions of Hallelujah? You yeah. know, like Leonard Cohen might be the biggest, that might be the biggest cover of all time by Canadian. What do you think? Probably darn near close to it. I, I can't think of anybody else. I can't else think has, of somebody else. I can't even think of a Canadian artist that's had 20 
covers of their song, are there? Yeah. I'm I mean, sure uh, are, I, Sunglasses at Night, Corey Hart. I know he did uh, a okay. lot of covers of that, or there were a lot of covers of that, but uh, not to have the same international or global success as Hallelujah did for Leonard Cohen. No. And then let's see who else I had on my list. Uh, I definitely had uh, Joe Cocker w- with a little help from my friends. Of course, it's hard to improve on most Beatles songs, but that stood the test of time for me. Well, he sort of, uh, I thought, I mean, I know Paul McCartney said he basically, he gave that song to him. He said, that song is now your song. You yeah. know, I mean, he, he doesn't do that. He's song. not going to beat that. <laughs> he, he's not going to beat that. And, you know, not with that voice. No. You know, I mean, Joe Cocker's voice was uh, unbelievable. Definitely. He knocked it out of the park. But um, let's go back to that yeah, Hendrix sure. one. Sure. You know, all along the Watchtower. Yep. I thought that was fascinating. Because if you ever listen to the, the Dylan one, like, I don't know how he got from A to B. Because the Dylan song is very simple. Mm-hmm. There's a very, it's like two or three chords, and that's it. There's just, it's a straight, you know, 4 4 song tempo. Excellent question. And, and I wish he was around so we could ask him. <laughs> and where did that whole instrumentation come from? That whole, you was know, it the arrangement. Producer, I wonder, uh, or was it Jimmy himself? I mean, who knows? Not a clue. You know, that's, uh, we could do probably a whole episode on that one because that's a fascinating one. And that's it another is. one where. He pretty much gave that song to Hendrix. So that's that's now your song. You know? I mean, it is so special that when it still comes on, it gives me goosebumps. Oh, God, yeah. But it's rare. I mean, I still hear it on the radio quite regularly up north. Oh, absolutely. You know. Uh, who else did I have on my list? Uh, Respect by Aretha Franklin, the original by Otis Redding. I thought that was pretty... Otis Redding did Satisfaction. Oh, yeah? He did an amazing version of that. Yeah, okay. and he did it... Uh, it was more soulful and it was more, you know, almost powerful. He had the, the vocals in there. They were just uh, a slightly faster tempo. Mm-hmm. And it was, I found it, I mean, I love Satisfaction, but his version, I thought, up the ante a bit. That became almost a celebration, you know. It, okay. was, a, it, was, a, it was a toe tapper, you yeah, know. And it, it's hard not to again. clap your hands and start singing along when you hear the, his version. Yeah. And the Respect version... By Aretha, by the way, um, when it came out, it was definitely considered a uh, feminist anthem. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, at that time uh, really spoke out to everybody and it became her signature song, of course. And well, you know that story where she, she played um, Massey Holland, one of the acts I was working with open. So I was privileged to wow. see her perform it actually and it wow. brought the house down. You know, I, I didn't know that was... I mean, I knew she didn't write it, but I didn't know it was a cover song. I thought it might have been written for her. No. Uh, Otis Redding originally released it in 1965. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, her version definitely uh, was the version, I think. Um, let's see. What else do I have in my memory list? Uh, Tainted Love by Soft Cell, which I still hear a lot, and i got to admit I was a fan of the song and still am when I hear it. I just There's something about it. And that was written by Gloria Jones, and it became one of the biggest hits of the 80s. And it's been brought back to life probably about four or five times. Yep. You know, and it's still a massive hit. You know, massive. If you go to dance clubs, you still hear that, that song. I would love to have the publishing for that. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> actually, again, I didn't know. Actually, I did know, but um, I had forgotten that that was a cover song because that, that song defined Soft Cell. Yeah. If they had it one did. song. It did. That is it. That is it. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call them what hit wonders, but that's a hard song to beat. Yeah. So who else did I have? A couple more for you here. Um, Run DMC, Walk This Way by none other than Aerosmith. Aerosmith. That was one of the biggest groundbreaking party records ever, in my opinion. It brought Aerosmith back to life. It did. In um, Joe Perry's books, he talks about writing, or when they did that song Mm -hmm. with them, they had no idea what they were getting into. The management put them together. Just put them in the studio together. I think they had to be talked into it, frankly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. He'd never heard of Run DMC. But, you know, they were both, you know, pretty much on the outs. Aerosmith was uh, not doing anything exciting. They were both still, you know, in drugs and whatnot. And so, but they did that song and it just brought them back to life. And, you know, they're probably, I mean, I would say uh, next to the Eagles, probably the biggest comeback of all time. I mean, Aerosmith were gone, you know, the early 80s. You know, they had uh, two new guys in the band. Yep. Though that album, Night in the Ruts, didn't do well, very well. There was also a gutsy move combining rap and rock in an arena yeah. format like that. I mean, yeah. that could have also backfired on them badly. Yeah. 
you know, but, but it that was went a the massive hit. Direction. Massive, massive hit. hit. I knew guys that bought the twelve inch of that. Yep. You know, and speaking so. about rock bands, here's another one for you. You really got me, Van Halen by the Kinks. Another great example. Another great example. Another rock band that came to life. Not not that they were doing badly, but I think that uh, that killer riff, yeah, really uh, punched them out there even more. You know. And what's interesting about that song is uh, Van Halen. I mean, I always thought of it as, as a cover. But I didn't realize how many covers Van Halen actually done over their their career. I mean, "You're No Good," which is a Linda Ronstadt song, yeah, yeah, you know. True. And if you think of the the original version and what Van Halen did with that, I mean, that's incredible. It is, you know. But you really got me blew my mind because they see that as their own. When yeah. I saw him a few times, they open shows with well, "You they, Really Got Me." They play that every every show. And the, remember the one we went to down in uh, Toronto yeah. there. It always goes over amazing, and I don't think people know that it's not their song. Yeah. <laughs> they don't care. And even Sammy sang that one, too. I mean, that's one of the few songs that, you know, when Sammy took over, they he, he, he would do that song, you yeah. know? Okay, let's go to worst cover songs of all time. I've got I've got five of my personal <laughs> picks. <laughs> I'm not sure if you'll know them or not. Some of them are so horrible. So um, Let's dive right in. Dive right in. Okay. The first one would be William Shatner. And Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. <laughs> now, nobody deserves this. It's, it's the best band of all time, and clearly nobody told William Shatner. It's just the weirdest, severe botching a song that, that's ever happened, really. So well, He did an album of covers, though, didn't he? I, I believe it's part of that album, yeah, okay. which is maybe going to be famous as the worst covers album of all time. It wasn't Probably. too long ago either. That was uh, maybe 15 and years he, ago. And he actually admits he was stoned when he did it, maybe on <laughs> LSD even. He, he, I've read that, that. So it is so bad. Listen to it once and then just immediately walk away and never listen to it again. It's absolutely horrible. That's um, so funny. Okay, so that's that's that might be number one on my list, but maybe there's a close second here with Smoke on the Water by Pat Boone. <laughs> <laughs> there's it's a close race, that one. Really. If you, you have to YouTube that one, it's just wow. like like was he paid a million bucks to do it that badly? Like I don't I don't know. It's just so bad. It's just laughable. Like you just start looking at it and go, that's not possible that somebody it's tried that. It's a funny that. choice too, because what I always thought, you know, was that song, was the guitar riff. Yep. You know, everybody that picks up a guitar, you know, that's probably one of the top 10 riffs that they try to, you know, work out. So I thought if you get rid of that guitar riff, you're not really left with a lot of left the song. No, no. Here's the strangest part is he actually did an entire album of metal covers. A whole album. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And they're all horrible. Every single one. There's, <laughs> I wouldn't give like a score of even 0.1 out of 10 for the, the covers. No, it's just a horrible album. So who else is, is close there? Um, let's see now. Um, this one's also pretty bad. Celine Dion and, a, and an artist from the UK called Anastasia doing uh, ACDCs. You shook me all night long. Not not yeah. not not something you want to listen or watch. Yeah, <laughs> mm. that that would you know maybe be third. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, really horrible. Then you've got um, Schmaltzy as hell and Sappy as hell. Madonna doing American Pie. I don't know if you've ever heard that one. It's really bad. No. Yeah. So sorry, Madonna, but that that one didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever hear Jumpin' Jack Flash by Aretha Franklin? Uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. That was in a movie uh, no. with Whoopi Goldberg a few oh. decades ago. I don't know what I thought about that one. I thought, you know, I love Aretha, but yeah. the strangest thing is I think Ron Wood was involved in that and Keith Richards was involved in that. And actually, that's how they got uh, the expensive winos together because oh. that's when Steve Jordan, he was in on that one. Yeah, okay. And then they kind of became friends and then they, uh, the next they worked on the Chuck Berry project and yep. then they were, started up with the, uh, the expensive winos. And it's horrible, is it? Uh, it's or, does, not, or, is it a, or does it get one out of 10 at least? Uh, I guess a couple out of 10. <laughs> okay. It's, I don't know. It just doesn't have that. Once again, that song to me is the guitar riff. Yeah. You know, and if you divorce the two, it just doesn't work. It doesn't it. work in my mind. Now, here's the, just to end this, this is probably another tie for the worst song of all time. Like, this is also quite unbelievably bad. Like, okay, My Way by Sid Vicious. Yeah. I'm talking about the My Way, the, the, the Paul Anka yeah. classic. Yeah. Uh, made famous by, by, by Frank, of course. Like, yeah. just, 
I, I was speechless that I, I don't even know what to say. I'm running out of <laughs> adjectives well, describing how bad about it, that it was. was or is. I, I thought he did a whole bunch of like covers. He did something else. He did a bunch of covers, but uh, that one was strange. There's to no me. one note in tune, not one. Yeah, I don't doubt no, it. No, not I don't one. doubt it. But he's he wasn't a terrible singer. I mean, I thought there was potential. You know, it's it's awful the way the situation worked out. But I thought that might have been something that they could have worked on. You know, as a punk rock singer, yeah. I thought no, he this might was have. nothing nothing short of musical homicide. This is a, a real favorite a part of the podcast for me, and that's talking about brand new artists. And I was really fortunate to actually see this artist called Kaylee Kinnan because I'm Estonian. A few years back, I was artistic director for something called Estonian Music Week, where the Estonian community would feature Estonian artists, uh, both local and abroad. And somebody from our committee said, well, let's feature an Estonian local artist. I said, there are some? (laughs) The Estonian community is extremely tiny. You know, I'm not trying to insult them, but it is. So somebody said, well... There's an artist called Kaylee Kennan, and she happens to be playing tonight. And I go, what? And it was some club on Bloor Street. So I headed down uh, because I was looking to, to feature an Estonian artist now. I walk into this place, and it was packed, but totally silent. I couldn't hear anything at all, and I'm kind of like, what's going on here? So I, I, I asked somebody, you know, when's the artist coming on? And the person whispered back, the artist is on. <laughs> I said, really? He says, yeah, she's in a real quiet section and you could hear a pin drop, Andrew. Wow. And I'm saying, in, in my years of being in, in the business and you know, discovering talent, this was very unusual. Uh, nobody was talking, no glasses were clinking. That was the special vibe there. The first thing I noticed was her smoky, husky voice, which really sounded unique to my ears right away. And to be honest, getting a unique voice ringing into my ears is almost impossible. And it's a miracle because everybody just sounds so generic. It's really tough to walk into a place and find somebody that's got something unique to say. And and then, of course, I also noticed that her lyrics were off the beaten track, we'll call it, like not, you know, like Max Webster-ish, let's say, like yeah. really quite different. So was she singing in, in English or Estonian? Oh, in English, yeah. Okay. But but I could tell just from her, her the, some of the song titles and what she was going for, it was kind of like, wow, this is really interesting. So I became a fan right away and actually ended up booking her a few times for a music festival. So she's continued to grow as an artist since then. And I know she's toured Estonia and various other countries. And I really think she's she's got the goods and the potential to go all the way if she keeps at it you know, hopefully she's going to, you know, work her social media and keep playing live. So a great artist, in my opinion, and you can find her um, online if you just uh, go to KayleeKinnon.com and you can check out her YouTube and Instagram videos and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy her. Now we're going to move on to the documentary or book section of the show. And today I want to talk about Patti Smith, her book that she wrote in uh, 2010 called Just Kids. It's been on my list. <laughs> oh, it's a fantastic read. It's a fantastic read. Just to say a, word, a few words about Patti Smith. Patti Smith is, although she isn't one of the biggest selling artists of all time, she is uh, undeniable rock royalty. I mean, uh, Rolling Stone has her in the uh, list of the top 1,000 of the uh, greatest artists of all time. Uh, she's also been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since uh, 2007. The book was a New York Times bestseller, and uh, it also won a National Book Award. So right off the top, Patti Smith, Rock Royalty. Uh, what's interesting about this book, and this book is fantastic for two reasons. The first is that it is an incredibly honest story about the birth of two artists who became or played significant roles in popular culture in the, the back half of uh, the last century. And the second reason, and I think this is the, the more almost important thing about the book, which I took away, was it's a time capsule of New York City. This New York City doesn't exist anymore. I no. Mean, this is a place was... Uh, You're talking the old Chelsea Hotel and all that stuff? Exactly. Oh, you've got the Chelsea beauty. Hotel, you've got drugs in there, you've got poverty... 
and you've got uh, what she talks about is is rock and roll really grew up around that time you know i mean from the 60s into the 70s you know it really changed and there was a lot of new artists you know Lou Reed, the velvet underground you know this was this was a you know a real coming of age let's just say it sounds really cool if it gets into detail about that era it does and and she you know i'll get to it a bit in a second she um so essentially, she starts off, she, she leaves uh, high school and she moves to New York City to become a poet. It's a crazy story. It's a story of uh, uh, homelessness. She's hungry most of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's living in doorways. She's sleeping in Central Park, you know, and then on a date one night, because she's so hungry, this guy has to take her out. She's just so hungry. <laughs> and then she, you know, splits after the date and then she runs into Robert Mapplethorpe. And she had met him at uh, her job earlier on. And then they become lovers. They moved in together. And then off the story goes. And it, the book is crazy funny. I mean, you know, when I mentioned drugs and poverty, there is that. But the book is crazy funny. The, the, one of the funniest parts is, is she works all the time. She has a full-time job. Mapplethorpe, not so much. Mm-hmm. He, doesn't, he doesn't like working. He's a slave to his art more than she is, let's just say. And, you know, he, he goes and sees... Um, what is that movie called? Midnight Cowboy. And he sees how that guy is making money. He says to Patty, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and I would have As if that's been, easy to do. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'd love to have been a fly on the wall thinking, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a lot ambitious. of jobs out there. Yeah, yes, let's go be a hustler. But well, the funniest of all, and this, this is another one, was uh, Mapplethorpe and, and Patty Smith, they, they used to squabble a lot. One of the main things they used to squall about was uh, when they used to go to restaurants because he would get very upset that people would be staring at them because she used to eat with her hands, with her fingers and whatnot, <laughs> which, is, which is unusual. But then her retort to that was, people are looking at me? You're the one wearing a, a bare-chested man with multiple beads around his neck and a sheepskin vest. So, <laughs> so who's, <laughs> who are they lo- really looking at? So that's good. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic book, and uh, you know it's also that's really f- sounds fun and entertaining it, to read. It is fun, and she didn't she get to know uh, Andy Warhol well? Yeah, they they went and they hung out in the the factory, and they went. And hung I hope out she she Max's bought some of his Kansas. paintings. <laughs> and they went there every day to try to you know get in with this crowd, which is hilarious. And what know? was her first break anyway? I don't remember. She started doing poetry readings. Ah, okay. And uh, a lot of these, she was also hanging around with the Velvet Underground group. I mean, uh-huh. uh, one of her first readings, um, Lou Reed was there. Uh, Jim Carroll was also there. I mean, she she lived at the Chelsea Hotel. There was the Jefferson, uh, the airplane that was there. She talks about sitting next to Jimi Hendrix. And she starts dating Alan Lanier, who was a uh, oh, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. So she was almost a reluctant... Entry into rock and roll. It sounds like she made great company for with some of these people, and they was, were all hanging exactly, out with her. Exactly, it was the company. So, anyhow, this is a, a fantastic read, and you know, I wish I could talk more about it, but it, I definitely recommend this book. I'm in. I'm starting it tomorrow. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely, a great read. We love talking about the best musicians in the world. And sometimes we agree and sometimes we don't. Like That's keyboard. true. <laughs> and you, 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 you probably won't be surprised by my choice, but maybe you will. We're going to talk about the best bassist, you know, at least in my opinion. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry uh, about this, Andrew, but I'm going to have to go with another player from the band, Yes. His name is Chris, Chris Squire. Squire. Sorry about that, but I just cannot get around the fact that I've seen Yes so many times in my life. And, you know, when I started thinking about who comes to mind right away when I think of a bass player, I think of him standing on stage. He had a cool look and what I call a really unique tone. He, he played it like a guitar, the bass. Yeah. And he had a very distinct, clear, aggressive, dynamic, melodic approach to it. And I think he was actually kind of a leader and, and a sort of an originator, I would say, in my opinion, mm-hmm. of, of playing the bass a certain way. You know, there's tons of great bass players. You know, Geddy Lee, for example, is no slouch and he's a tremendous player. But I think that, again, back to being innovative, I think Chris Squire, when he came out, people just did a double take and went, is that a bass? Yeah. Well, bass is a tough one, you know, and, and especially with a band like Guess, where they're all phenomenal players. Right. I think he definitely added into his sound, but he didn't have like your sort of stereotypical bass, you know, of, no. you know, just sort of 
playing the bottom end. You know, he did more than that. Well, you know, he also did hammer-ons, tremolo, picking, distortion on the bass. He had lots of effects, pedals generally that were used by guitarists and he he yeah. just said well i i'm a guitarist i'm a bass guitarist i'm bass just gonna guitar. i'm gonna plug it in so he really went above and beyond what i think was happening mm. in the bass world at that time it's funny you mentioned bass guitar when i was uh, I, I took some bass lessons a few years ago and my my instructor at the time said it's not a bass guitar it's called an electric bass because the ah, bass is yes. an instrument not right. a guitar right. once you put That's guitar true. on there it becomes something else true I had a difficult time with this one. There's a lot to, you know, playing bass. You can either just keep the bottom amp going or you can be like in the Grateful Dead where you're basically playing like it's it's like an electric guitar. It doesn't yep. really, you know, serve that function. The two bass players that I, I got stuck. I, oh, you got I, two? I got two. You, I got oh, two. Okay. But maybe maybe All we right. can, we can, we can, you know, we can. <laughs> I pick Flea. Oh, yeah. You know, the I, Red Hot Chili Peppers. I, I had him up there on my list. Phenomenal bass player. Yes. What I like about him is, you know, he is, you know, a pivotal part of the songwriting process with John Frusciante, a lot of the more famous stuff that they did. And it all fits together nicely. And he can go off like crazy. And he can go off like crazy on the stage, too. He's he can a go off, yeah, madman on I was, the stage. I was watching his uh, Woodstock performance of 1999 where he plays completely Oh, he's naked. crazy. He's insane on stage. Uh, then the second one, which I'm sort of leaning towards this guy. I know Flea is phenomenal. Uh -huh. My favorite bass player has got to be probably Michael Anthony. And I'll, I'll, I'll get into the reasons why. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> First of all, he did a great job. Like all this, the early Van Halen stuff, you know, the bass uh -huh. player is very, uh, it's not like Metallica where it's, you know, hidden somewhere. It's it's out there. Well, Metallica, you couldn't hear the bass couldn't in the, hear first, the, bass. the first few albums. <laughs> There's a rumor if there even was bass in the <laughs> But I, one of the reasons why I picked Michael Anthony is because, I mean, he had one of the hardest jobs in music, and that was basically to follow Eddie Van Halen, you know. And uh, All right, that's a valid point. And, you know, he did a fantastic job, and, uh, and I remember seeing an interview with uh, uh, Eddie, and he basically said he just wanted uh, Michael to follow whatever he was doing with 16th Notes, just whatever he was doing, wherever he went, 16th Notes, just keep it down. Well, he was solid as hell, that's for sure. I don't know if, he, if I call him an innovator of any kind, but I think as far as actual uh, bass player that just played amazingly tight with a drummer for rock, I, mean, I don't know yeah. if anybody could beat him. And he had fantastic backing vocals. Yeah. I mean, all the Van Halen backing That's vocals. That's true. Very distinctly Michael, uh, Michael Anthony. That's true. And with Chickenfoot, I thought he was, he was great. You know, he played with Joe I Satchel forgot that he used yeah. to play with Chickenfoot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Sammy Hagar and, you know. Chad Smith, I mean, that was another, you know, great band that he was in. But I agree with you. He's not an innovator, but he's solid. And, you know, if ever going to be in a band, if you wanted a great bass player, you know, it'd probably be uh, him. It is a great choice. My name is Andrew Schalk, and thank you very much for listening to episode six. And my name is Tom Tremuth. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm -hmm.